For many, the book of Revelation is a riddle that needs to be unraveled. It is a writing that is deeply shrouded in mystery. The book of Revelation is classified as apocalyptic literature. The Greek word apocalypse means to unveil or to reveal. It's the idea of an artist revealing his masterpiece, a creator revealing his latest invention. In this case, it is God revealing his future plan for his church and the world. I realize that there is much language that is richly symbolic in the book of Revelation. It seems that on nearly every page, there is a comic book looking villain that emerges on the scene. I don't want to be too over simplistic about it, but I think the book of Revelation can be summed up in a two word phrase. Christ wins. The reason God wrote the book is to tell the church of every age, Christ wins. I realize that it looks like the wicked are winning. You look out your window, you read your newspaper, you turn on your television. It seems as if the wicked are advancing in their agenda. Marriage has been redefined. Morality is upside down. At any moment, there could be political catastrophe. Terroristic attacks are imminent any day of the week. It appears as if the wicked are winning, yet the book of Revelation was written to tell you and to tell me and every church of every age that Christ wins. He is victorious. The victory was secured for us some 2,000 years ago historically on that great Easter weekend event. For on that Friday, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine. His dead, lifeless body was taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled in front of it. But three days later, early on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus got up out of the grave. And when he took his first step, he stomped and crushed the head of the serpent. And by his actions and activity, he declared victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. My friends, our victory was secured His historically some 2,000 years ago on glorious Resurrection Sunday. But theologically, our victory was secured before Genesis 1-1 ever took place. In the book of Revelation, Jesus identified at least twice as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So theologically, in God's mind, Jesus was crucified before Genesis 1-1 was ever uh, came into existence when God said, let there be light. So God brought about recreation before creation ever existed. He established salvation before sin was ever introduced so that Calvary is plan A and God doesn't have a plan B. So theologically uh, speaking, our victory was secured even before Genesis 1-1 ever took place. So Mary did have a little lamb. And in order for you to be victorious, you've got to follow the lamb. This morning, we begin a seven-part sermon series entitled Red Letters, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. We find ourselves over the next seven weeks rooted in Revelation chapters two and three. It is to this first letter that we give our attention this morning, the letter that was written to the church at Ephesus. This morning, I wanna to speak to you a sermon that's simply entitled, First Things First. 
Ephesians, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, let me begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and our prayer is quite simple this morning. Help me to preach. May your word be found not only on the lips of the preacher, but also on the ears of the hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This revelation belongs to Jesus. In the opening line of chapter 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave so that his servants might know what will soon take place. In verse 4, John is identified as the author. Let us be very clear. Jesus is the revealer and John is merely the recording secretary. This is Jesus's revelation and he employed the services of the apostle named John to write it down let's be clear in our understanding of who this John is for there are many Johns in the Bible this is the John whose brother is James the sons of Zebedee because of their zeal for the Lord Jesus called them the sons of thunder together James and John alongside Peter formed the inner circle of the disciples this is the John that went on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. This is the John who sat beside Jesus at the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal. This is the John who stood at the foot of the cross. And while Jesus was writhing in pain, Jesus looked down at his mother Mary and said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And from that point on, John took Mary into his house and provided for her. This is the same John that outran the old man Peter to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. It is John who got there first. He bent over, looked in, and saw that the tomb was empty and the body was not there. This is the same John that by the Spirit's power authored the gospel that bears his name. The three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And this book, Revelation. Apparently, Jesus regards him as a reliable recording secretary because he entrusted into his care the writing of five out of 27 New Testament books. This is Jesus' revelation that is recorded by John, the beloved disciple. About 60 years have passed since the glorious resurrection of Christ and the writing of the book of Revelation. 
Over those last six decades, the church took to heart the messianic mandate to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The church was on the move. People were coming to faith in Christ. And we are told that John is on the island of Patmos. He's there not as a tourist, but as a prisoner. Patmos is ancient Alcatraz. It is the place where political exiles were sent. Church historians tell us that John, later in life, actually became the pastor at Ephesus, the church that receives this first letter. It's listed here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Church historians also tell us that John is the only apostle who was not murdered, martyred, but he died of natural causes. At the end of the first century, we find this John on the island of Patmos in exile, in jail, imprisoned because, according to his own words, it was the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So apparently, this son of thunder never lost his zeal. Apparently, he was quite vocal in his allegiance to the Lord. At the end of the first century, the Roman government cared very little if you bowed your knee to numerous gods and goddesses of the pagan culture. But they were very adamant that every citizen of the Roman government had to at least declare Caesar is Lord. Apparently, John wasn't willing to do that. He did not bow the knee to anything other than Jesus the Christ, and his lips could not say Caesar is Lord. His lips could only say Jesus is Lord. And because of his adamant uh, declaration, because of his demeanor, because of his zeal, because of his commitment under Christ, it landed him on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I like that. You know what he's saying? He's saying church broke out. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Whether you are on a mountain or in a valley, whether you're a free man or a prison man, whether you're in Patmos or in Pelham, it doesn't matter. When the spirit moves, you've got to respond. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Church broke out. Church can break out anytime, any place. And when God's spirit moves, God's people have to respond. And so the loud voice spoke like a trumpet behind him. Write down everything that you see and send it to the churches. One of the great difficulties of interpreting the book of Revelation is knowing when the language is metaphorical and when the language is literal. There are certainly some times that the language is richly symbolic. There are other times when it is concretely literal. And one of the Difficulties is knowing which time to interpret what type of vocabulary. Let me give you just a simple illustration. In Revelation chapter 1, John describes Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And in his description of Jesus, he says that a sword is hanging out of his mouth. Now, I don't think that Jesus is running around the streets of gold of heaven with a sword dangling from his lips. If that's the image that you have of Jesus, then certainly you must also visualize Mother Mary quickly on his, uh, on, his, on, his, on his trail saying, now Jesus, don't you run like that because you'll trip and fall and hurt yourself just like any mother would do. So certainly what John is portraying is a, is a figurative image 
a metaphorical statement because the writer of the Hebrew letter says that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It can divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can even lay bare the very thoughts and attitudes of a man's heart. So what John is portraying for us is the word proclaiming the word. It is the word of God, Jesus himself, who everything that he speaks is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And so John portrays him in a very metaphorical sense that he is there with a sword dangling from his lips. But then Jesus says, write this down and send it to the seven churches. The first church that's listed there is the church at Ephesus. Now that's a literal place. All seven of these churches that we're going to examine over the next seven weeks were real, literal churches. They literally existed in the first century. Now, for the last three months, you and I have been walking through the Ephesian letter. You're well-versed in the city of Ephesus. You know that the city of Ephesus was one of the leading cities of Asia Minor. It boasted a population of 250,000 people, which in that day was a large city. It was a city that had no morals. There was no moral standard. Whatever happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. That was their billboard and that was their motto. There were people that would do just about anything and everything. In fact, uh, other individuals who write about the Ephesians, they would say it was commonplace in Ephesus for a man to have an adulterous relationship. For a master to sleep with his servant girls was commonplace. Homosexuality, prostitution, incest, all of those things were part and parcel with the Ephesian culture. One Greek philosopher said it this way, that the morality of the Ephesians is lower than the animals. The inhabitants that dwell within are fit only to be drowned. This is the smut of society. It's right there in Ephesus. And, and the Ephesians prided themselves on their immorality and their idolatry. The whole city was known for its worship to Artemis, that goddess of fertility. They believed that she dropped out of the sky and landed right there, and so they constructed a, a large temple in her honor. This was a massive structure. It was one that was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet tall. There were 127 pillars that went around this structure. 60 of them were overlaid with gold and precious jewels. This was one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. It rivaled in majesty uh, to the hanging gardens of Babylon, to the pyramids of Egypt, and to the mausoleum. This was a spectacle to behold. Not only was the religious life of the Ephesians all entrenched in idolatry, but even, even the commerce, people would come both near and far to tour that glorious temple and to go through the marketplace and purchase those shrines, those idols that were in the image of Artemis. And in all of this, God planted a church. In all of this, God planted a church. And it was a good church. It was a good church in a tough town. It was a good church that did good ministry, that was faithful unto the Lord. Listen to the commendation that Jesus gives to the Ephesians. I know your hard work. I know your deeds. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have the ability and the capacity and the willingness to evaluate prophets, preachers that come and speak 
And you have the ability to know the ones that are true and know the ones that are false. You have endured hardship for me. You have not grown weary. You have persevered. My grandmother would call that stick You don't give up. You don't give in. There are many times and many of you that could have just thrown in the towel and waved the white flag, but you have endured hardship for me, Jesus says. And you have not grown weary. Verse 6, he says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I mean, so far, this is a glowing report card. This is a good church in a tough town. They do a lot of things well. They have meaningful ministry. Uh, they have uh, tremendous influence. They know doctrine. They know good preaching when they hear it. They know how to regard and evaluate those that are false. They know how to make an impact in the culture. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. You're not a lazy congregation, Jesus says. You do a lot of things. Well, I can well imagine that the church at Ephesus had the best vacation Bible school in Asia Minor. I mean, I bet they had a nursery that was second to none. I bet that they had people that were willing to volunteer in the preschool and children's ministry and student ministry. I suspect that they had ministry not only to the body of Christ, but even outside the walls of the church into the Ephesian culture. I bet that ministry was effective. I bet that, that ministry was, was good. They grew up on good preaching. Think about the pastors that they had. The Apostle Paul was their founding pastor. In the pastoral letters, it is Paul who sends Timothy, his son of the ministry, to Ephesus. Church historians tell us that John later followed and was the pastor at Ephesus. I mean, that's a pretty macho trio of preachers, don't you think? I mean, you've got Paul and Timothy and John. These guys can shuck the corn. They know how to do expository preaching. They know how to really communicate God's word effectively. And it stuck because the people were able to evaluate. They didn't call in any preacher who would just give them what their itching ears wanted to hear. They knew how to decipher between cotton candy preaching and and real legitimate word of God kind of stuff. I mean, this church was an educated church on the scripture. John says, through the words of Jesus, you, you could have waved the white flag of surrender. Just because you're a good church doesn't mean it's been easy. I mean, you could have walked away, Jesus says, but you didn't. You did not grow weary in doing good. Apparently, they also didn't like the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, who's that? The Nicolaitans were people who professed to be Christian, but really they professed with their words only, not with their walk. They were individuals that thought it permissible to have multiple sexual partners, to have actions that were immoral, decisions that were unethical, to say that you were a follower of Christ only impacted how you worshiped and where you worshiped and everything else that you lived throughout the week. You could just live like an Ephesian. I don't know about you, but I think I went to college with some Nicolaitans. <laughs> I think that maybe some Nicolaitans have been in previous churches or on previous church staffs. I mean, I think I've met some Nicolaitans before. And you have too. 
And Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you do not tolerate the practices of the Nicolaitans. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans as I do. Notice he doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. No, we don't hate anybody, but we may evaluate the practices of individuals and we can say we hate their practices and their behavior. Jesus says, that's fair game. I do the same thing. When I think about this description of the Ephesian church, I got to be honest with you, I, I think of, of you, First Baptist Pelham. I mean, I think that these same words of commendation could be given to you today by Jesus the Christ. I think he could come and say to you, this faith family, us today, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know your ministry uh, to every age group of the family, to the youngest of children, to the oldest of adults. I know your intentional ministry, your meaningful mission trips. I, I know your engagement in the culture. I know your willingness to take the gospel wherever you live. I know your priority on worship and gathering together in music and song and word proclaimed. Jesus could say, there are many of you who could have walked away from me, but you haven't. There are many who could have thrown in the towel because of what you've experienced individually or maybe even corporately because of the things that have gone on. You could have walked away, but you haven't. You have not grown weary. You have persevered. You have the ability to decipher and discern what is true, what is false. And you too do not tolerate the evil practices of people who proclaim to be Christ followers, but it's only with lip service only. I think Jesus could say much of the same thing. I think that his, his good grades that he gives to the church at Ephesus, he could give to First Baptist Pelham. Jesus only has one word of criticism against the Ephesian believers, but it's a pretty big one. Sandwiched in the midst of all those good things, Jesus says, yet I have this one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. What does Jesus mean by that? Jesus has a knack of communicating at multiple level, levels using a singular phrase. For example, in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 3, it's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus under the cover of night and says, good teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus thinks to himself, this is weird, this is unbelievable, and quite frankly, it's really gross. I mean, how in the world can a grown man re-enter his mother's womb and be born for a second time? That's just grotesque. And Jesus says, I'm not speaking about a literal rebirth. I'm speaking about spiritual rebirth. One chapter later in John chapter 4, it is Jesus who has a roadside conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. And he says to her, I will give you living water. And she says to herself, good sir, how can you get this living water? You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She thought he was talking about literal H2O. He was talking about spiritual H2O. He said unto her, I will give you a spring that will well up inside of you into eternal life. Oh yes, Jesus has a knack being able to communicate at multiple level, levels using a singular phrase. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says you have forsaken your first love. That word first could be understood as first in chronology. 
It can also be understood as first in intensity. I want to submit to you this morning, I think he's meaning both. Because many times, our first love for Christ in chronology equals our greatest love, our first love for Christ in intensity. What he's leveling against the church at Ephesus is this, you've lost your edge. You've lost your passion for me. You've lost your, your overwhelming, consuming desire for Christ. I don't know if the church loses that passion. I just think there are times that the church misplaces that passion. Have you ever stopped to consider that first love will cause you to do some kooky things? I mean, just think back in your own life, uh, in your own dating experiences, your first love, that first love will cause you to do some kooky things. I remember the first time I laid eyes on Jane Ellen. I, t- I could tell from the moment that I saw her, there's something special about that gal. I want to kind of get to know her. But I was a freshman in college. She was an upperclassman. It's rather dangerous for a freshman in college to ask an upperclassman on a date. And when I was a freshman in college, I had a very fragile psyche. Who am I kidding? I still have a fragile psyche, but it was even more fragile back then. So I did the only thing that I could do. I got a friend to ask a friend to ask a friend to ask her. I said to James, James said to Mike, Mike said to Knox, and Knox said to Jane Ellen, hypothetically, you know Davin, our friend. Yes, I know Davin. Hypothetically, just by chance, if he were to ask you out, would you say yes? And her response was, just like that. That response came to Knox. Knox brought it back to Mike. Mike brought it back to James. James brought it back to me. I said, guys, are y'all yanking my chain? Are y'all messing with me? No, that's exactly what she said. She said, just like that. Still took me two weeks to ask her out. Everybody on campus knew I was going to ask this girl out. And so I told all my friends, okay, by week's end, I'm going to ask her out. Now, I knew that on this given week, she was going to be part of a revival ministry team going out to a, a, a church to lead in a weekend revival. And I told everybody, okay, by the time Friday comes, by the time she leaves for the revival team, uh, I will ask her out for the next week. Because let me tell you, not only did this girl look good, but she also loved the Lord. That's a win-win, don't you think? I was born at night, but not last night. I thought to myself, okay, I want to get to know her. So it got to be Friday at lunch. We're all sitting there, and I had not asked her out yet. And so uh, she uh, comes by the table. We're all seated there, all on the big table there in the cafeteria at the college. She walks by, and she says, well, I'm going to the revival now. But before I go, I'm going to take my tray and put it up, and then I'm going to go check my mail and see if I have any letters in my mailbox. She walked away. I was still eating my lunch. My friends looked at me and said, what is wrong with you? Did you hear what she just said? She's telling you she's going to the mail room. You need to go down. Uh, You think I need to go down? I think you need to go down. Well, what about my tray? We'll take care of your tray. You just go down there and ask her out. So I jump out of my chair. I bolt out of the front door. I take the staircase. I got a bare left. Then I got to go right. It's a couple of flights down. And I get to, well, fancy meeting you here. Ah." 
I was just thinking, maybe, perhaps, you know, after you get back from the revival thing, you know, um, maybe next week, early in the week, maybe on Tuesday, maybe we can go to a movie. Would that be okay? And she said, just like that. (laughs) She said, yeah, that'd be great. I would love to. And I was trying to be all cool and calm. It's like, okay, have a good weekend. I'll see you when you get back. I turned around and I was going, yes, right? I remember the date of our first date, January the 26th, 1993. The first date led to a second date. Second date led to a third date. Before long, I was rearranging my calendar just to hang out with this girl. We would talk. We would write letters. We would call each other, even though we're on the same campus. By the time February 26 rolled around. We knew there was something going on. And, and I remember we, we exchanged uh, one month anniversary cards of our first date. We kept doing that every month. Her parents thought that was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard. <laughs> I can tell you that just two weeks ago on the 26th of last month, it was our 290th month anniversary of our first date. It's kind of kooky, isn't it? I mean, who in their right mind keeps up with the months of the anniversary of your first date? There are times now that I'll text her mother when it gets to be the 26th and just say, hey, you know what day this is? It's a running joke. She'll come back and say, Davin, you are just kooky in so many words. But first love will cause you to do some kooky things. Do you remember your first love for Christ? Do you remember when you could not talk to him enough? you remember when you couldn't read enough about his word? you remember when you couldn't spend enough time with him? you remember when you used to rearrange your schedule just to hang out with Jesus? you remember when you were so excited to come to church, be with God's people on God's day, hear God's word? Do you remember that first person you ever led to the Lord? And, and when you did that, you thought to yourself, now this is living because you presented the gospel and the person responded in faith. You thought, yes, this, this is awesome. Do you remember your first love? Jesus said to the Ephesians, you've lost your first love. You've lost your edge. You've lost your zeal. You've lost your passion. You've lost your all-consuming care for Christ. How do you know if you've lost your first love? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions. Has there ever been a time when you were more excited to get to church than this morning? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you had a greater hunger for the holy things than you do now? Has there ever been a a time or a season in your life when you were more eager in evangelism, tenacious in telling the story about the gospel than you are right now? Has Has there ever been a time when you gave God fewer, if any, excuses of why you can't go here or do that, do this or do that, than you do today? If the answer is yes to any of those questions, then you, my friend, you've lost your first love. Because there's been a time when you had more fire in your belly. There's been a time you had more zeal in your spirit. There's been a time when you had more all-consuming passion where Christ literally dictated everything that you did and the calendar, calendaring of your events 
It's not that you've lost passion. You've just reprioritized passion. What you used to give Christ, now you give your job and your children and sports and travel and vacation and on and on and on. It's not that you've lost it. You've just rearranged it. And Jesus regards it as you've lost your first love. You say, well, that's not a big deal. It's a busy season of life. I've got a lot of things going. I've got a lot of things happening. I mean, the family responsibilities are ever-growing. My work is all-consuming. There are a lot of things that are happening. I mean, I'll come back to Christ. It's not that big of a deal. My friend, you're talking just like an Ephesian. Well, I, I don't do the bad sins. I don't do those big things. Once again, you're talking just like an Ephesian. If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then certainly the greatest sin must be failure to love Christ with the greatest love of your life. So what's the remedy? Jesus said to the church, repent. Actually, Jesus told them R and R, not rest and relaxation, but remember and repent. Remember the height from which you've come and repent. Start doing the things you did at first. What's the remedy? The remedy is to remember. Remember when you were so in love with Jesus. Remember when you had an all-consuming passion. Remember when you rearranged your schedule for him. Remember when you could not get enough of him. Remember when you led someone to Christ on his behalf. Remember the zeal that was in your spirit. Remember the height from which you've fallen and repent. What does it mean to repent? Jesus just simply says, start doing the things that you did at first. Wait a minute, I thought repentance was turning and going the opposite direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. And here it says, start doing the things you used to do that you now are failing to do. So what does it mean to repent? It's not just with lips, but with lifestyle. Start doing the things that you did at first. Remember and repent. I'll give you a little um, uh, disclaimer that in all seven of these letters, the remedy is going to be the very same. The only remedy for the church is to repent. The only remedy for the church is to repent. Let me say it again. The only remedy for the church is to repent. Jesus will say this not once or twice, but seven times. Repent, repent, repent. What does it mean to repent? Start doing the things that you did at first. What if you fail to repent? Jesus says, he who fails to repent, I will come and remove the lampstand from its place. Ichabod is a strange word. It's an even stranger name. The name Ichabod means the glory of God is gone. If Jesus were to remove his presence, how long would it take you to notice? If Jesus were to remove his presence from our denomination, if Jesus were to remove his presence from our church, if Jesus was to remove his presence from individuals, how long could we continue business as usual? I'm afraid that sometimes Jesus stamps the name Ichabod upon groups or churches or individuals and they don't even know it. The glory of God is gone. Why? Why is the glory of God gone? Because of a failure to repent. If you refuse to repent, Jesus says, I will remove the source of light. I'll remove the lampstand. Jesus in, in this book says the lampstand is the church, the genuine church. I'll remove the church from its presence. I'll remove my presence from you. 
Ichabod. The glory of God is gone. Friends, I can't think of anything worse than Ichabod. I cannot think of anything worse than being slapped with the label Ichabod. And what's the remedy? The remedy is to repent. He who repents will overcome, Jesus says. And I'll give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Repentance is key to overcoming. What does it mean to overcome? Well, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, this is who overcomes. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the overcomer. And the overcomer is one who says, Jesus, you are sovereign over my life. I believe you are the Son of God. I can't give you too much. I can't think about you too much. I can't serve you too much. I can't love you too much. I can't worship you too much. You are the Son of God. And when a person declares that by his life and by his actions, by her life, by her actions, Jesus removes the the title of Ichabod and places upon it blessed favor of the Lord. Whoever overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. What Jesus is doing is he's reversing the curse. The curse that was given in the opening chapters of Genesis because Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God had to kick them out of the garden. He put cherubims with flaming swords there to guard them so that they would not come back and eat from the tree of life for in that condition if they ate from the tree of life they'd forever be in that condemned state but now Jesus says I have enabled you to overcome for you believe that I am the son of God so now you can freely eat from the tree of life and be in that redeemed state both now and forevermore so repent and declare Jesus is the son of God my friends I wonder Would Jesus write this letter not only to the Ephesian church, but also to First Baptist Pelham? There are many great commendations, many words of encouragement that are given, but one word of criticism, and it's a glowing word of criticism. It's an indicting word of criticism. You have forsaken your first love. Has there ever been a time when you're more irritated by your sinfulness than you are today? Has there ever been a time you were more in love with the Lord than you are today? Has there ever been a time when you're more zealous for Christ than you are today? If the answer is yes, then please hear my plea this morning to repent. So that we can say with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I've loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. First things first. May you and I never forsake our first love for Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, if there's someone here who has lost, I pray that they will be found by your goodness and your grace and that today they'll come forward and accept you by faith. Lord, if there are believers here, and let's just be honest, we've lost our edge. We've placed our love in other things. And today we need to repent and start doing the things we did at first. So Father, may your altar be full of your saints coming back home to you. Oh, Father, may our first love for Christ cause us to do some kooky things for the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.